Welcome to TBA Now. My name is Keith Stern, and I'm the rabbi of Temple Beth Avodah. This congregation is a community filled with diverse, fascinating people with great stories. Each podcast features a member of Temple Beth Avodah who will share their thoughts and their passions on a range of issues. In this inaugural episode, our guest is Diane Hessen. Diane is a longtime member of Temple Beth Avodah who served in a variety of positions whether on the board, as a parent, or on stage. Diane's been writing fabulous articles in the Boston Globe about a panel of American voters. She has a kind of insight into how people think about politics, how it interfaces with their lives, more so than anyone I know. She has learned so much, and we're lucky that now, She'll be sharing that insight with us. So let's get started. Diane Hessen, I am so glad that you are here, our inaugural guest for the TBA Now podcast. You have been a significant person over the years here. Uh, in terms of your leadership and uh, your acting skills for a variety of plays. <laughs> and as I recall, um, you were on my search committee. I was on your search committee. Yeah, so I, you know, I'm beholden to you all these years later. Uh, and it's just so exciting that we would be talking today. First in person, it's great to see you live and in color. And second of all, it's great that we're able to be uh, in this beautiful refurbished boardroom that was just being completed uh, as everything shut down. So now that things have a bit of an opening, we're glad that we could squeeze through and uh, have this uh, opening podcast uh, this morning. So welcome. Thank you. I'm happy to be in this beautiful room, which uh, for for our members who haven't been in it, the thing that's really wonderful about it is the same thing that's wonderful about the sanctuary, which is that you got a big window where you feel like you're outside in the woods. It's really lovely day, and it's so bright in here. I remember all the years that I was on the board of the temple, we used to sit in a dark room. It'd be a lot more fun to have board meetings in this room. A lot more cavernous in those days. So <laughs> t- tell us something about how you came to Temple Beth of Odah and the things you got involved with. Yeah, I we moved to Brookline Street in 1987 um, from the city. My daughter, Lindsay, was like 14 months old, and it was time to have a yard. And um, I lived in, when I moved, people said, oh, you live in Oscar Wasserman's old house. Uh, and I realized that there was a temple right around the corner, which we uh, joined shortly thereafter, and uh, where my daughters ended up going to preschool. I uh, got involved in the temple right away. Rabbi Miller asked me if I would run family services during the High Holy Days, and we had a great time with that. We used to have various parents reading parts, and we had a play with all of the kids. I probably still have pictures of all of that. Mm. But of course, the most important moment was being on the search committee and (laughs) interviewing all of those other rabbi candidates and then having you come in and knowing that you were going to be my rabbi. And well, it all honor. worked out. Yeah, so far so good, I think. <laughs> right. 
it's so uh it is so surreal thinking back all those years and how uh the shape of the universe seems to have so significantly changed as we're all grappling to figure out how it all uh all comes together now because we're having to come up with a whole new ethos about who and what we are and what we do and how we do it i mean Things like uh, deciding if we're going to go shopping and, and if we do, what store and how do we have to prepare ourselves. It's, as they say in the old country, it's Meshuggah. It is. And it I is. know that your story and what you have been doing these past few years, well, you've been doing a lot, actually. So do me a favor, Dan. Would you tell us, first of all, uh, your professional background that has led that led you to be i suppose invited uh, by the clinton campaign to do some significant research and then how that research led you into what you're doing now in addition to i think several other things so can sure. you kind of give us a sense of your trajectory sure you know professionally um you know i I always tell this story because it it really is about my life's work. Um, when I got out of business school, my first job was at General Foods, which was a big consumer packaged goods food company. And um, when I went in there, they said to me, okay, Diane, we have a zillion products. I mean, we got post cereals, bird's eye frozen peas, stovetop stuffing, Gaines burgers. You know, what do you want to work on? And I said, I don't care. Just give me a product that I understand. So don't give me decaffeinated coffee because <laughs> I didn't understand why anybody would want to taste something awful if it didn't deliver the primary benefit. And in their infinite wisdom, they put me on brim decaffeinated coffee as the product that I was managing, which was um, the beginning of this journey to understand people who were very different from me and to unlock that mystery. And it ended up that that notion of trying to walk in other people's shoes is just something I'm very passionate about. So um, eventually, fast forward, I built I, I did a startup, and I built uh, what turned into a pretty large company called Communispace that essentially leveraged technology to help brands understand their consumers. So, for instance, if Coca-Cola wanted to understand you know, millennials all over the world in multiple countries, we would put together, using our technology, these online communities, think focus group on steroids, and it would give brands continuous access to the voices of their customers. And uh, I started that company. What a great idea. Well, you know what it is? It's it's just a great use of the internet. Like why put 10 people in a room for an hour when you could have access to hundreds and hundreds of people all the time? And it was a big breakthrough for people. So um, uh, that whole startup was a really wonderful story. And I um, was CEO for about 14 years and decided to move on and do other things. But I was kind of grounded in how listening is such an underrated marketing strategy, how our clients who are all big, big companies, big brands, you know, had major breakthroughs by just investing their money in trying to understand their consumers instead of just talking at them. So I left that business. I was running another company and I got a call from a friend of mine from back in my space days who was very high up in the Clinton campaign, he said, Diane, you know, we have a lot of data. We understand a lot about what's going on, but we're not sure why. And I just thought maybe I could pick your brain. And we stayed on the phone for about three hours Mm. coming up with ideas for 
how to really understand what was happening with voters. And at the end of the call, he said, would you ever consider leaving your job and helping us out? I jumped at the chance. How just come? because, well, what he was interested in was having me help them understand undecided voters in swing states. I thought it would be really challenging. I could not imagine in 2016 how anyone could be undecided. And I thought this would be fun. I never had a lot of interest in running for office politically, but I've always loved reading about it, watching it, uh, et cetera. I thought it would be fun to kind of get inside a campaign. So I gave my board 90 days notice and I spent six months in 2016 in my home office alone, you know, after running a company with thousands of people, there I am by myself talking to people. And um, in the market research space, if somebody says, like Coca-Cola, find us 500 millennials, that's called a recruit. You recruit the millennials. Um, finding undecided voters was one of the easiest recruits Easy. I had. The country was filled with people who basically said to me, look, I'm going to vote, but I'm walking into that voting booth. I'm going to hold my nose and flip a switch, which was an enormous revelation to me. The, I basically built an online panel of all of these people, and I did exactly with voters what we used to do with brands. On a weekly basis, I would give them a project. I'd send them a survey. I'd sent a video to respond to. I had people doing collages. I had people doing Mad Libs, just making it as interesting as possible. And uh, But my first report to the campaign, I'd, I'd send a report to the campaign every week. My first report was who is least worst. That, you know, there were the, the country and especially swing states were filled with people who just were not happy with either candidate. And we went from there and it was absolutely fascinating to just Get, see what was going on. It, it, it sounds extremely fascinating in terms of the people that you're bumping into who aren't like you, it would seem to me, who, mm -hmm. who are bouncing, trying to make decisions that you've made a long time ago. Would that be accurate? Some people not like me. Some people, you know, one of the big swing states right now is Pennsylvania. And I grew up outside of Philadelphia, basically on the wrong side of the tracks. And sometimes I would talk to people and think, oh my gosh, they're not any different from me. That guy could be somebody who I went to high school. That person could be my neighbor. You know, the, the process of doing those interviews really took me back a lot to thinking about who I am and, you know, how I grew up and what really mattered to me at the time, you know, before I became a New England elite. You know, I, well, it's hard to imagine that you would be able to talk to that guy you could have easily gone to high school with and to hear him speaking about things that are antithetical to you ethically, politically. And as you said early on that, that you had this ability to walk in someone else's shoes, what's the methodology of that, Diane? Is, does it end up being personal temperament? Did you have to 
get trained into that through school? Was it your mother? Like, who? How, how does how does that happen for you? Because it feels to me more than ever that that's a premium quality that's increasingly rare to find. I just I'm really passionate about listening. I mean, it's just one of those things that I'm constantly refining. In 2016, I was just talking to undecided voters. And I basically called and said, look, what I'm really interested in here is I just want to understand you. I promise you, A, that whatever you tell me will be confidential. And B, there's no judgment. No judgment. And what I learned was every once in a while, somebody would say something absolutely appalling to me. And I'd just laugh. You know, I'd laugh and I'd say, that's so interesting. Like, tell me more. Why do you feel that way? And it's very reinforcing when you do that. And, and you know that as a rabbi, that sometimes, you know, people love feeling heard. They don't feel heard by their spouses, their children, their parents, their boss. And to just be able to talk about your perspective and have somebody say, that's really interesting, which it almost always was, uh, it was great. And of course, the more that you talk to people and the more that you listen really hard, the more they tell you, which was when you asked me about the design of the study, you know, in politics, everything when you're trying to understand people is about getting them to tell you the truth because people don't do that. As we know, people do not always tell the truth to pollsters. Um, people just... You know they, they, um, you know they'll they'll try to look good. People don't even necessarily tell members of their family what they're going to do. So a victory for me was not trying to convince somebody that they should vote for Hillary Clinton because it wasn't my job. A victory was, I remember once somebody called me on the phone. Uh, this was a couple of years ago, and she said she's whispering and she said to me, "Can we talk?" <laughs> and I said, "What?" What? She says, "I just need to tell you something. I think I'm messing up your data." Because I told you that I voted for Hillary Clinton, and I didn't. I voted for Trump. But no one could know because I think that wow. if my husband knew, he would leave me. And I just thought, oh, my. I mean, I was so happy that she <laughs> lied to me and that she voted for Trump. And she felt comfortable enough to feel like she could tell me the truth. So a lot of my work has been about getting people to tell me what's on their mind, and maybe sometimes even to tell me things that they normally hadn't thought of themselves or, or wouldn't necessarily even share with a friend. And doing that is so rewarding. It's so fabulous the, how you describe it. And I think it even underscores further the idea of how difficult it is to even find people who are willing to listen. I, I wanted to digress uh, back to an earlier point you made. Um, before uh, getting into some of the meat of the panel that you work with now. What went wrong in the Clinton campaign? Well, what I remember from 2016 were a few things that just really struck me. One was there were an enormous number of people who voted for Donald Trump, not because they liked Trump, but because they really detested Hillary Clinton. This was not, oh, she's boring. Oh, she's opaque. Oh, I don't like her pantsuits. This is people thought she was corrupt. Um, and they would talk about what I think of as the body of work. 
you know, white water. They'd go back to white water, Vince Foster, of course, Benghazi, the emails, pay to play, the Clinton Foundation, how Hillary and Bill walked out of the White House stealing some of the furniture when they left, and even how, and, and this happened with a lot of white women, even how Hillary said that she was a feminist and for women, and yet how she put down the women who had accused her husband of sexual harassment. It was a huge revelation to me. And even today, I mean, people who voted for Trump still say, you know, I don't like the guy, but having Hillary in the White House would have been worse. So that was one thing. There was just a lot. She was a very unpopular candidate when it came to people who were undecided. Um, and people also thought that she was elitist. And of course, that was reinforced. You know what? I, I did all of this research and after the campaign, um, in November of 2016, one of the things I decided to do, I was going to go back and take another CEO job when it was all over. And uh, while I was doing it, while I was interviewing people, I thought, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to write an op-ed, see if I can get it into the Boston Globe. And I'm just going to say, here's what I've learned. And here's what I think it means. And you got tremendous response. I got tremendous response. And I think one of them, one of the reasons was it was just you know, I, what I wrote about really resonated with people, which is that the big shift, the big thing that made undecided voters decided uh, was not about Comey reopening an investigation or anything. With this population, a lot of people shifted right in the aftermath of when Hillary Clinton called half of Trump, put half of Trump supporters in a basket of deplorables. So in my op-ed, I wrote that that for the people that I've been speaking to, that was the turning point. Because what it symbolized was, you know, you people aren't good enough for me. It, it reinforced everything that people thought about elitism, about government not working for people. And it was just unbelievable how everything in my online community just exploded and people started calling themselves deplorables with pride immediately. Um, I tried to get the campaign's attention on that, but, mm, you know, it's hard. These candidates have so many people giving them advice. Um, you know, it's interesting so, you said that. I, yeah. I think that the, the power of advisors uh, can never be underestimated in a political campaign. And a whole campaign is swayed by a certain, or can be swayed by uh, a certain group advisor responding to a certain phenomenon uh, in the the life of the uh, campaign. Absolutely. Although I think that um, Hillary Clinton's was a fairly traditional campaign in that she had zillions of advisors. So people go, oh, you worked for the Clinton campaign? Like, how many times did you talk to Hillary? It's like, none. <laughs> you know, I got a note from her at the end, um, a short note. <laughs> but um, I was one of hundreds. And, you know, even now these days, people will say, oh, I really like that article that you wrote. I hope you're sending that to the Biden campaign. It's like I could send it to the Biden campaign, but it's one of, you know, 10,000 pieces of advice that they get every day. So it's a it, it's difficult to break through. So there's this clear turning point in the Clinton-Trump election race where she makes the comment about the basket of deplorables. Mm -hmm. Is there a similar thing that happened with Trump and suburban women 
where the numbers now of women who did vote for him, but have st stated they've changed their minds, is really significant. Is there a particular thing that happened that you think has changed that, at least at mm -hmm. this stage? You mean for it right now, here in October of 2020 with suburban women? Yeah. First it's cumulative. All, yeah. I don't believe the data that says suburban women have abandoned Donald Trump, white suburban women have abandoned Donald Trump. I mean, I, it's not a big about face. You know, suburban women have always said to me, look, it's not like I like the guy. You know, I would not want my daughter to date him. I would not want my son to be like him. I can't stand his tweets, you know, all of that. I mean, they, they've said that all along. Um, it's just that, you know, and I think this is the other big theme. People in America don't feel that their government cares about them and don't feel that government works on their behalf. You know, the, the drain the swamp thing was probably the most important thing, way more important than make America great again was how much draining the swamp really resonated with people. And so many people said to me, look, I don't really like the guy, but I don't know. Something's got to change. Maybe some crazy person will go into the government, blow up all the stuff that's not working for me, and give us a fresh start. I heard that all the time. Maybe the guy will just change everything because everything is a mess. Um, nothing feels fair and my government isn't serving me. So you'd hear that a lot. And the other thing that I heard a lot from women, from white suburban women, was how presumptuous they thought it was for women like Hillary Clinton to decide that we knew what was best for them. You know, their issues are not about you know, I can sit around and go, rah, 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 let's like, break that glass ceiling once and for all. They don't really care about the glass ceiling. Hmm. They care about, you know, they care, and their husbands do too, they care about taking care of their families. They care about making ends meet. So in they, the end, the, the, the glass ceiling was more an issue for the women who were seeking to break it than yeah. for the... Absolutely. So for white suburban women, most of, for most white suburban women in America, the women's movement doesn't represent them. The mm -hmm. women's movement and the things that they talk about don't really resonate with the issues that are really important to them. And so I think some of their emotional tie to Donald Trump was, again, a reaction against voting for a woman because she's a woman when that woman's priorities are not the same as what I have. It was a personal affront in a yeah. way. Yeah. I think now the women that are walking away from Trump are just, um, you know, their health care costs haven't really changed. Their economics haven't necessarily changed. They are worried about COVID. I think the women are just fed up and everyone is worried about, everyone is worried about how divided our country is. Diane, after you wrote that piece... Uh, you got tremendous response, and something happened after that. What happened? You kept going, yeah. but in what context? Well, you know, after that piece, it what you know. I think what happened with the deplorables article is it was it was published the Tuesday before Thanksgiving, 
And I think people sent that article. You know, we were every, a lot of people were worried about being with their family and fighting about the election. And I think a lot of people just, it went viral because people started sending that article around saying, bring this to your crazy uncle, <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, for Thanksgiving. So all of a sudden, there I was, you know, one week later, I'm on, you know, I'm on CNN with Jake Tapper, nice Jewish boy from Philadelphia, uh, saying, tell me a little bit about your research. And I'm talking to the Wall Street Journal and I'm, you know, getting interviewed by this. I thought, oh my gosh, I'm making more of a difference after the election than before. So instead of taking a CEO job, I decided that I needed to carve out time in my life to keep going. So um, I decided I was going to take at least a third of my time and keep doing this research. And for the rest of my life, instead of taking the CEO job, I just got a lot of, I just decided to join a bunch of boards. So I'm on eight boards and I spent a lot of time just uh, working with startups and everything. But I've got that third of my time when I kept going. So I said goodbye to my original group and I recruited... Um, in December and January, December of 2016, January of 2017, I went full-time recruiting 500 voters. And this time, they were going to be representative. So I recruited 500 people from all ends of the political spectrum, very, very far left, very, very far right in the middle, all ages, all ethnicities, 10 people from each state, et cetera, so that I would have a panel of voters that I could go to to really track, you know, what was going on in the country. And I didn't really have this endpoint. I just thought this is so interesting. And the way I did it, um, on the assumption that I was going to stick with this for a while, is with each one of those people, I did a half-hour phone interview with them using old technology, mostly because I was trying to build relationships so that I could say to someone, no judgment, confidential. I'd really like you to be a part of this. And it also made me sure that I was talking to a real person uh, rather than somebody just kind of faking their way to try to get into my panel. So I spent two months on the phone. And by the end of January of 2017, I had my group of 500. And to make a long story short, I just decided that whenever I heard, you know, learned something really interesting, I would write about it. And the Globe basically said, we'll do it as a series. Just whenever you learn something, we'll take it. And uh, I was off and running. And here we are almost four years later. And I have been talking to these people every single week for almost four years. Am I allowed to ask you if you have some favorites? Oh, I have a lot of favorites. <laughs> and, you know, it's interesting, Rabbi. About 50 of these people have been with me literally since the beginning. I mean, over the over time, some people have had to drop out. I've added some people in to just kind of, you know, refresh the perspective. Um, you know, I, I wanted to add more young people. So I added more young people and I took others out. So I keep tweaking it. But, you know, there are people who every single week do the project respond to the questions. It's absolutely extraordinary to me. And I have not given these people one dime. I just say, this is so interesting. Thank you so much. Or, you know, whatever. I learn about people's lives. And you know what people say? Thank you so much for what you're doing. Thank you so much for listening to me. Across the spectrum. Thank you so much. Across the spectrum. Thank you so much for giving me a chance to vote. It's just all about saying, I 
respect you and I trust your opinion. And I've got these people who say, well, you know, I'd, I'd be okay with immigration if you were running the immigration department. You know, oh, so it's, um, it, it, it's very interesting, just that whole dynamic of, you know, trying to build trust with people on a weekly basis. Well, what you've been able to do because you've had this time with them is to scratch below the surface and find the person, not the slogan. Yeah. And I think one of the really painful things about living in this country right now is this tremendous sense of anger and divisiveness mm -hmm. and uh, opposing sides in a, in a really painful, hard way. And it's scary. Uh, and I'm wondering in the work that you've done with these people, many of whom you've really come to know and appreciate, again, across the spectrum of political ideology. How concerned are you as you listen to them, as they themselves describe their experience of a divided country? Mm -hmm. Well, look, I'm worried about our country. But if, if I had to tell you the most important thing I've learned... I am absolute I am absolutely confident that there is tremendous common ground in our country especially on policy. So there is common ground on immigration, there's common ground on gun control, there's common ground on healthcare. I can go across the issues. And what I mean by common ground is I could put a whole bunch of voters who you'd think are divided in this temple boardroom and propose a solution that 80% of them would say, eh, I'd be okay going with that. So 80% of the people in the United States, no matter who, no matter where they are on the political spectrum, would be okay with immigration reform that says, let's give the dreamers a path to citizenship Let's, uh, on a limited basis, build some physical wall along the border. Let's invest in technology that is better at surveillance, blah, blah, blah. I mean, I can go on and on and on, but most people would be okay with that. And there are bills on Mitch McConnell's desk that actually have that kind of legislation. So, And I can go policy after policy. You can get people to agree. We are not that divided in reality on the substance. Where we are divided is that the extremes get the airtime. Um, so, for instance, um, we have perceptions of the other side that are really inaccurate. You know, the media puts the crazy people on TV. So it's just much more interesting to show white nationalists marching through a city than it is to show normal people trying to live their everyday lives. So I want to make sure I get this right. So, you know, if you ask most Republicans, tell me about the Democrats and the Democratic Party. What they will say is Democrats are a bunch of elitist socialists who want to take our hard-earned tax dollars and give them away to illegal immigrants, criminals, and people who are too lazy to work. 
They want to take away guns. They want to allow women to have regular abortions. And they want to completely get rid of all police departments. Now, if you are a Democrat listening to that, you go, uh, wait a minute, that's not the Democrats. That's just the fringe. But that is what they have learned from the media and from our president. Now, if you flip that and you ask most Democrats about Trump supporters, what do we say? They will describe a bunch of hypocritical, uneducated deplorables who sleep with their guns, refuse to wear masks, deny that climate change is happening, and never met a black person they liked. And for the Republicans in our congregation who listen to that, they're going to say, none of that is true. That's just not true. It's not who I am. But those narratives are out there and they are loud and they have divided us. So between a divisive, I don't care what your politics are, I think you believe that our president is incredibly divisive, our Congress is incredibly divisive, and the media reinforces that. And meanwhile, most of the people in the country, if you actually just understood where they were coming from, are just not like those extremes. So that's why I'm optimistic that there is an opportunity to bring us back together. But, you know, we got a lot of, you got a lot of countervailing forces there that are just, you know, taking us in the wrong place. We're not as divided as we think we are. And the ability to really develop a nuance that is to say, to understand that these descriptions on the left and the right that are on the very edge of uh, believability. That being the case, that it makes good news. It, it's great. How does one develop a sense of nuance in, in our population to be able to look through that? That's a frightening thing to me, given that the people who are most on the left will hold on to their particular news source and the people on the right are doing the same. And so everything is filtered through a screen that will already skew response to everything. Yes. And I wonder how do we, I mean, I know people say, well, you know, I watch, uh, I watch MSNBC, I watch uh, Fox, and then I put it together. I think it's hard for people to do that. I, yeah. uh, and, and I wonder. But it's hard to do it because MSNBC mm. and Fox reflect the voices of the people on the extremes. Often, not all the time. And unfortunately, people on the extremes would not characterize what they're believing as extreme. Right. Which then becomes problematic as the the way in which it's expressed, yeah, um, which then reinforces the that horrible list of uh, qualities, qualities and quotes that you read the that the left sees the right and the right sees the left. Yeah, I don't know a way through this by talking at people. You know, I just I just don't. I think people need a government that they believe hears them. And understands them, and it's a it's a long road. But you know, we've been there before. I suppose so. I I, I uh, just watched on Netflix the if you've seen it yet the uh, movie about the uh, Chicago Seven trial, mm -hmm. and uh, 
thinking back to the 60s and first of all, being able to remember that period as having living through it was a rather intense historical moment. But remembering how absolutely split apart this country was between yeah. Vietnam and yeah. the generation gap and... Right. I uh, mean, the Gulf of Tonkin. The Gulf of Tonkin was fake news. Right. That's exactly right. right. You know, we, we like to think that the history of America is, you know, most of the time we all just put our arms around each other and love our country and sing Kumbaya. But our history is full of violence and, you know, fighting and protests and, you know, all of those things. I mean, it's a it's a very inspirational story to see how we, you know, can get to this point. So but, speaking yeah. to that point, you wrote a very, I would say, uncharacteristic article in your of as it appears in the globe which was uh, your response shortly after the George Floyd uh, murder mm -hmm. uh, you wrote a very very strong piece about race and racism oh thank you and uh, it was moving and inspiring and you expressed a lot of pain in this and and also you were talking about the accountability of uh, white people of privilege. And mm -hmm. I wonder what what put you in a position to write something that was as strong as it was and how does the current situation regarding racism in this country and addressing mm -hmm. it and the things that have been written about it where are you at with that? Mm -hmm. And what are your thoughts moving into the election? Yeah, that was a, it was an outlying piece. So thank you. That's very flattering that you, that you read that and you realized that it was something that was a little different. I, um, after the George Floyd thing, I called up a friend of mine um, who's a pretty close friend who's black. And I said, I don't even, I don't know what to do with what's going on. And I feel funny about asking you to help me because you've got to be in a lot of pain. Anyway, we were on the phone for about an hour and I just said to her, talk to me like, what do I not know about what it's like to be black in America? And this is a very prominent black woman who has a big job and huge respect and a big house and another house on the vineyard and great shoes and the whole thing. I mean, you'd think she's arrived. She's the American dream. And the story that she told me about what it was like even to be her was shocking. And it was particularly shocking to me because I thought I was pretty woke about racial relations. I grew up in an integrated community. I went to a very integrated high school. I had a lot of black friends. We went to each other's houses. I knew their parents. They knew my parents, et cetera. So I kind of thought I was woke. And I, when I started talking to people, I just realized not just how much I had forgotten, but that I really was clueless. You know, and sometimes as Jews, we say, well, we understand discrimination. We understand somebody hating you because of who you are. But Unless you're very orthodox, you don't wake up in the morning, walk out of your house, and have it immediately obvious to the rest of the world that you're Jewish. You know, my last name's Hessen, and uh, I don't have a last name that says to people, you know, she's Jewish right away. And there have been times 
when I'm embarrassed to admit that that's made my life easier. Hmm. So the idea that who you are, that being black is who you are all the time, that you have the mask on all the time, uh, was really striking to me and just hearing all the stories. And I just decided, well, I'm good at at interviewing people and understanding them. So I just called a bunch of people until I thought I had some themes about what white people probably have forgotten about what it's like to be black. And, you know, we say things like, black lives matter. What do you mean black lives matter? Like all lives matter. And what I learned is, you know, saying all lives matter is like going to a pancreatic cancer march on Boston Common and carrying a sign that says all cancers matter. I mean, it's it's so not the point. Um, so I don't know. I guess I just felt inspired to kind of use my same process, talk to a bunch of people, and write an op-ed for my white friends that just said, why don't you just suspend disbelief here and realize that it is different it, it's different for black people than it is for Jews. It's different for black people than it is for people who are gay. It doesn't mean always better, worse, whatever else, but it was very, very poignant. And um, I'm, of course, I'm still learning a lot. I'm yeah, still learning a lot. Process. My voters are, the voters in my panel, you know, I've done 52 op-eds now. I'm going to stop probably once the election comes. It's like enough already. I'm going <laughs> to figure out something else to do with that extra third of my time. But you know, that people do, are, are confused. They're, they're confused that, you know, if they say, I want to make America great again, somebody can look at them and say, that's such a racist trope. You know, because some people want to make, make America great again by having it be all white. But a lot of the people who want to make America great again just, you know, want, they want to be able to make ends meet. Yes. They want college to be a little less expensive. They want... Um, they don't want to worry about putting food on the table versus, you know, getting more medicine for diabetes. I mean, that's sometimes they, they're a business person, a small business person. They want a little less regulation. It's not a racist thing to them. So somebody will say that's racist and it's, it's confusing, but so, we will be confused before we're clear. And there will always be uh, confusion because we're, we're, it's a moving it, it, the car is always rolling. It's always moving. Um, I wonder, as an analog to this conversation about Black Lives Matter and about the, the, the piece that you wrote, your sense, listening to your uh, panel, um, and white supremacy and the very real presence of QAnon uh, in mm -hmm. American political discourse. I, I wonder how that plays for you, both as you listen as a Jew, uh, as a concerned person in the world, and the extent to which it matters much to your panel. Look, I have people in my panel that I think are QAnon, are in QAnon. There's actually one who's local. Um, and she talks so much about pedophiles that I called her on the phone. And I said to her, 
you know, what are you looking at? Because do you know about QAnon? Do you know what that is? I think that's who you are. I think you're doing that. She's like, I don't know. But, um, you know, you do hear all of that. Look, all of those things are worrisome. I do believe that they are a very, very, very tiny slice of our country. And they are a very, very large part of what the media, especially cable news, puts on TV to make us afraid, to make us worry, to get us to be more addicted to seeing what's happening next. But I just don't believe that those are the major themes that are going on in our country right now. So you would say in some sense that it's a distraction from the larger issues in this country. Well, you know, it's hard to think about white supremacy and call it a distraction. I just, you know, it's 1%, 2% of the country. Now, is 1%, it's way bigger percentage of the country that consists of white people who have, who perceive that they have lost jobs to people of color, um, who perceive that they are, that they worked and did multiple jobs and took out loans and got their kids through college and now are having to have their tax dollars go to people who they perceive will not work as hard on life as they did. There are a lot of people who feel that way. But I think, number one, they're not white supremacists. I mean, I I guess if you read How to Be an Anti-Racist, I guess you could call all of us white supremacists. But in in the way that we think about it, People who worry about giving their tax dollars to others that they perceive don't work as hard as they are, that's not white supremacy. That's just, it could be misinformation. It could be just a real feeling. Um, it, it could be something that people actually have experienced that is actual data for them. So there are a large chunk of people who feel that way. But I think we need to resist the temptation to classify them as racist or to classify them as white supremacists, because it feels, it feels lazy to me to be dismissive of somebody's real experience because well, we have a whole nuances. new set of words that we can use now where we can sound really brilliant. Like, oh my gosh, that person just said that. You know, if you read these three books on racism, you would now realize that what's behind that is that the person just doesn't like anyone of color. I mean, we do that because we have new concepts a new language now. And I think in the beginning, you know, we're two-year-olds. We apply those concepts to things that are, as you said, much more nuanced. So we just continue to grow. Uh, there's no, it, and it hurts to grow. It's mm-hmm. difficult. Um, yeah. I wanted to ask you because, uh, and there's so many, look, we could go through every one of those columns uh, that you've written over the past years. Um, one issue I want you to touch on, your most recent uh, piece was about the youth vote. Mm-hmm. And I wonder the extent to which your findings loop into the possibility that you might have some thoughts about hope 
uh, moving into uh, the November election. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I wrote this piece about youth voting because um, I I do think that it's the most hopeless thing going on right now is the fact that young people are not coming out, have not traditionally come out in droves to vote, that they are cynical about it, that they say, none of these guys represents me, and I wanted this candidate instead, and so I'm staying home. And um, You know, by the way, they even did that when it was uh, the thought that Bernie Sanders was going to attract all the young people, right. but even during... Uh, that period, that that was the failure of the Sanders campaign in the end. With this, that group, that was the the youth vote that was supposed to be out there for him, never showed up. They so the cynicism has really built up over months and years. Yeah. What I the, the main point I was trying to make <clears throat> in my article, you know, what I'm doing now as I'm winding down is I'm starting to say, okay, I'm the messenger. Here it is. Now uh-huh. let me spend my final paragraph telling you what I really think. And that's what I really did with the youth vote. I tried to talk about why young people don't vote. And then I decided to step aside and be their mother. <laughs> and there are so many things that we say to young people, right? It's your civic duty. Do you know how hard your ancestors worked to make sure that you had the right to vote? Um, the message that I have found really works for young people is to make sure that they are clear that power and influence as a generation is not a chicken egg thing. It's not like you wait until you get a great candidate, you know, and then you vote. You have to be a powerful voting block first, and then you get the policies and the candidates you want. Um, that if you care, you know, Donald Trump and Joe Biden are not talking about student loans. They aren't. And the reason is they will not lose the election because they were silent on student loans. If, however, young people came out in droves and voted, and there are now more people under the age of 35 than there are in any other voting bloc, if they came out now, you can be sure that student loans will all of a sudden start moving to the top of the agenda of our politicians because they know that they will lose their jobs if they're not there. But you know, right now, what do you hear about the what do you hear with the politicians? They talk about drug prices. They would never say, um, you know, I I think it would be really really efficient for our government to um, just cut back Social Security or let's take the retirement age and move it to seventy because. You know, baby boomers are doing pretty well at age 65, as you and I know. They would never do that. I mean, they would lose their jobs because older people vote, and they will vote against somebody who wants to take their Social Security benefits away. So if you look right now, why do you think Biden talks about race and Charlottesville and all of that? There are two reasons. One is that in his heart, he believes that these are material issues. These are extremely important moral issues for him. The other reason he does it is that he would not be our candidate if it weren't for the fact that black people, especially in South Carolina, but more broadly across the country, came out and voted for him. So right now, 
those people are an extremely powerful voting block. And if he wins the election because black people came out, he will be responsive to those people. You know, on the other hand, if the youth in our country would wake up and run to the polls and vote for what they care about, which are things like climate change, which are things like gun control, et cetera, they could get what they want if they demonstrated that people will not be able to win elections anymore unless they advocate for the issues that they care about. And, you know, that was, so I decided I just had to say that. It's not about your moral responsibility. It's not about your ancestors. It is about understanding what creates power and influence. So um, I don't know. I hope, I hope I got some people to register as a result of that article. <laughs> I hope so too. I, I, I think you're a, a very compelling uh, writer. And I think that the message is clear and fundamental and so much hangs in the balance. In a way, I feel great that the word COVID only came up two times in the course of our conversation. Uh, on the other hand, it would be, seems to me, uh, I would be shirking my responsibility were I not to ask you about that too, Diane, and to think about how has the pandemic played out in your experience with your panel and their response to the world? I think the impact of COVID has been pretty predictable. Most people who hate Trump say, he has completely mismanaged this thing. I mean, what a debacle. Um, and we all know the statistics that were 4% of the world's population and 20% of its deaths. On the other hand, on the side of people who like Trump, we also know what they say. They say, are you kidding? The guy is doing the very best he can. I mean, he he closed the border to China and everybody told him it was a racist thing to do. And then he closed things down for, you know, we're getting masks and we got ventilators and he's got this team and he's got Fauci. And I mean, everybody kind of drank the Kool-Aid so that you could take the COVID story and pretty much morph that and, and have it fit with your own politics. I think at the fringes, though, there are a lot of people who have just said, I've had it. I mean, it's, 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 I'm writing one last piece, and I think it's what I'm going to write about because, you know, Biden, who tends not to be the most articulate candidate in the world, said during his first debate, I'm going to just paraphrase it, but he basically said, look, the United States is poorer, sicker, less safe, more afraid, more divided now than we were four years ago. If the ultimate promise that Donald Trump made was that he was going to make America great again, we are clearly not great again. And I think to the extent that COVID put a cap on that, I mean, if, if you're a progressive, you think that America was not great again way before we a pandemic showed up. 
But I do think that COVID kind of capped that. It highlighted our divisiveness. It highlighted kind of how how messy we are at handling things, how inefficient things are. Uh, there's very little about how our country's handled COVID that makes anybody proud. And um, so Trump has clearly lost voters and is in the process of still losing voters because they're watching these rallies saying, this guy is my crazy uncle. You know, the election's going to be all about turnout. It'll all be about who has enthusiastic voters who will get out and stand in line for six hours and, you know, do all of those other things. I have no ability. I have no ability to predict what's going on. But having this happen uh, during a time of COVID um, is fascinating as much as people have different narratives about it, I think it'll have a huge impact on what people think about, you know, as they go in and figure out whose box they're going to check. It is a jungle out there. And uh, <laughs> you've given us so many provocative thoughts and, and ways of looking at this. And some of them, some of them sad and scary, and some of them also actually wonderfully hopeful, which is incredibly refreshing given the average daily reading and watching that we do. What advice do you have for us as we move into this election? And what would you want to see us doing as a congregation and just individually to, to try to make it better? Oh, you know, that's so hard. I mean, I can tell you that for me, I don't know, I guess I could be Pollyannish about it, right? Choose love. Choose to love your fellow man. What we tend to do is somebody says something, and if we don't agree with it, we say, well, actually, that's wrong because da-da-da-da-da. Or I know you just said that, but did you read that New York Times article? Because I actually think those statistics are wrong. Just shut up. <laughs> shut up. Um, it's always illuminating to just say, maybe that person is not as despicable as I think he or she is. And you know, I, I've, I said I've written 52 op-eds. The, the, the weirdest one for me was, I wrote something a couple of months ago about people wearing masks. So I live in the city now, I walk along the Harbor Walk, and my husband and I literally look at people and we can decide how they're voting. We, this has, how, by how they're voting, by whether they have a mask on or not. And I just thought, this is crazy. So I went out one day with my notepad and I found people who weren't wearing masks and I interviewed them. And I just said, hi, you're not wearing a mask. I'm just wondering if I could interview you about your mask wearing habits. Well, as it turns out, most of the people, at least in Boston, who weren't wearing masks actually thought that they, that masks were good. They told me that when they wore masks, when they didn't, why they didn't have one on at that particular time outside. Like by the time I finished talking to, I don't know, it was only about 20 people. It completely changed my perspective hmm. because I realized that our rules in this country are very unclear. I mean, you can say social distance, da, 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 but you know, like, well, you know, what, some people go inside a restaurant. I would never go inside a restaurant. Are they bad? Am I bad? 
You know, are they taking their lives into their own hands? And I think just taking something that would drive me crazy. I'd see somebody walking around and they didn't have a mask on. And I think this person is insane. And then I start asking and here they saw themselves as someone who was good at, at, um, at mask wearing. And now as a result of that research and that little op-ed, now when I walk along the Harbor Walk in Boston, I am not mad anymore. I see people walk past me that don't have masks on, and I think, hmm, I bet that person is like so-and-so who I've interviewed, who just thinks, ah, I didn't bring a mask outside. It's a beautiful day. I'll say social distance from people, but who is not breaking every rule and who might not be voting the wrong way or thinking about the world the wrong way or trying to infect other people. So I know how much that's helped me to find a situation where there's somebody who says something or does something that I think is just unacceptable. And instead of lecturing or sending statistics or saying, I just can't deal with those people anymore, just kind of leading in a little and saying, can I just ask you, why are you doing that? Why are you voting that way? And then when they tell you, saying, well, what's behind that? Like, tell me more. We don't do that. We, we, we're great at lecturing. We're, you know, we're smart here at Beth Avoda. We got our statistics in our head. We got our books that we've read. But when people feel differently, they don't want to hear about our books. They want to, they want to have an opportunity to share what they think and, and feel the respect that comes with that. So I just say, try it. And there are a lot of people here I know that have tried that and just don't want to deal with it anymore. Yeah. It's hard. It's, it's not always a rewarding experience to say, tell me more. But sometimes it is. Sometimes it's surprising to go, oh my gosh, that person just said something that I thought was completely despicable. And at the end of the last 10 minutes, I decided that they were okay. You know, it, it makes you back, feel better about humanity. Yeah. It, it loops back to what you said at the beginning of our conversation, which is people need to feel like they're being listened to yeah. and not judged. Yeah. That sounds like a good prescription to me. Tell me more about that. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, all easier said than done. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Diane Hessen, thank you so, so much for being our inaugural podcast guest. You thank are you. I'm the honored. perfect, I'm the honored. perfect guest. <laughs> and I do want to say thank you to um, many of my temple member friends uh, who write me and put comments on my Facebook page and just let me know that uh, they really appreciate what I'm writing. It's... Um, it's very strange having been 30 years in business to be sitting in my office, you know, basically at my typewriter, pulling the paper out and ripping it up and going, whoever said that I could write? It's just such a hard thing to do. Uh, and I, I'm really grateful for all the support from this community. Oh, you do it well. Thank you. Thank you.